Hi, it's your producer, Kendra Vicken. You may notice that our guest gets some notifications on his computer in the beginning of this episode. You'll hear a few chimes here and there. Typically, I try to remove this kind of stuff, but in this case, the chimes were often under what he was saying, and what Dennis was saying is so profound that I didn't want to remove any of it. So please bear with us and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Heal. Today on our episode, Dr. Dennis Godby shares about his third walk across the United States, this time to promote awareness of health equity, that all people of all races, class, genders, and economic status have access to just, fair, safe, and highly effective medical care and health education. It's about getting the words health equity and not just equality out into the world. Many people need a leg up just to reach the same access level and possibility of health that other people are born into. Dennis Godby, naturopathic physician, has been a licensed and practicing doctor in Sacramento, California for 12 years, and he has been standing for preventative medicine with the importance of health and diet and exercise since 1978 when he ran from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., 3,006 miles, 100% self-supported. An incredibly inspiring activist and physician, Dennis Godby is the pinnacle of a person who is willing to take massive action to bring awareness and change to issues that matter to him and to the world. Join us. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. We're here. We're doing it. I'm so stoked about this conversation. Dr. Dennis Godby naturopathic physician, and you are up to some cool, extraordinary stuff. I am so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah. So it's just been a couple weeks since you just got back from 600 miles of walking across America. You're doing it in five legs. Is that right? Over the next five years? Yes. The first I was completed was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to Knoxville, Tennessee, and then Knoxville, Tennessee, the second leg coming up next year to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And then the next year with Milwaukee to Fargo, North Dakota, yep. and then Fargo to Helena, Montana, and then Helena to Seattle, going to finish in Seattle. Oh my gosh. How rad is that? And this is not your first go at this. This, <clears throat> this will be the third time across the United States. The first time was 84, 85 to protest U.S. policy in Central America. And that was a run. And then in 2011 with my two sons and nephew run for naturopathic medicine in 2011. Yeah. That's when we got connected was before that run actually happened. Cause I was in med school from 2005 to 2009. And there was somebody had started to talk about student volunteers being involved in supporting you. Yeah, that was, that was, and I'm so glad I met you. I know. That's awesome. So I want to get into like all, all the things, how it's been, why you do this, like what that's like for you personally. And then also this walk is distinct. So, I mean, you've had different causes or different things you're standing for each time. And when we were connected 10 years ago or more was about just awareness about naturopathic medicine as a whole, like bringing awareness to our profession that we exist, what, what naturopathic physicians can do for people and their health. And, but this time you're taking on inequality in health or standing for equality in health and healthcare. Would you speak to what that literally really means to you? 
Well, it, it kind of is a, it's kind of a, uh, the story really began in, in 20 during the COVID crisis and uh, people arguing about, you know, vaccines, no vaccines, masks, no mask, and all of those things. And people being pretty belligerent in their, in their viewpoints. And also this was the time of Black Lives Matter and a time where a lot of, just a lot of things were going on. And I felt like, what is the best way that I can contribute? Because the issue of racism and discrimination have been, have been important since I was a kid. I, I literally am old enough to remember times when Blacks weren't able to drink out of the same drinking fountains, not in, mm. not in California, but in other parts of the country. And certainly that racism is rampant across the country still, and even more so in, in these ultimate last years. And so I felt, what can I do to raise awareness about, about health equity? Because as a naturopathic doctor, and what could I do? I, at, we're promoting health, but also social justice has been a major issue since 1981 for me. And the runs have always been a way to be able to spread this message. And so four years ago, I tore my meniscus, and so I couldn't run anymore. Mm -hmm. So so now I, I'm a walker. And I thought it was no different than whether I'm running or I'm walking. In fact, in some ways, people can relate more to walking than they can to running. So I decided to that this was the best way that I could make a difference because it's a media-worthy event. And people say, that's interesting. If somebody's going to walk across the United States, maybe I should listen to what they're saying. And so it's for me as a Caucasian to be able to say, what can I do? And it's a very interesting thing because you know, as I got across, as I began to walk across the country, I began to realize kind of more consciously that as a Caucasian male, I can walk across the United States, whereas a female or an African-American or Hispanic, mm -hmm. they, they may physically be able to have the stamina to do it just like I do, but they wouldn't feel safe. Yeah. And so, so for me, it's always been like, what can I do with all the privileges and all the advantages? And some people say, well, you know, there's no white privilege. Well, Maybe there isn't in the sense that maybe the way I'm treated is the way everyone should be treated. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I have a privilege in the sense that I feel safe, but maybe that everybody should feel safe yeah. in that sense. And so that's kind of how I began this whole effort was that as a naturopathic doctor promoting natural medicine, and that I wasn't just promoting health equity in the sense that everyone gets to have the same equitable treatment with conventional medicine but also with natural medicine so that we're actually treating lifestyle medicine, natural medicine, and what we can do. I mean, for example, everyone should have a vitamin D level above 50. Yeah. It's not hard to do, no. but people don't know that. And it's massively supportive of what we're dealing with right now at the level of infectious disease and supporting the immune system. Yeah. Exactly. I oftentimes think about when I earned my early years of practice, I used to think about that. There was a commercial that maybe dates me, but there was a woman that says, well, I could have had a V8, you know, and they were <laughs> right. talking about you know, V8 vegetable juice. And it's like, wow. It's like, why didn't anybody tell me 20 years ago that about vitamin D? Why didn't anybody tell me about omega-3s or about exercise yeah. or about, you know, trans fats or those things? And so there's a lot of things that we do. A lot of American lifestyle is one where it's not hard to change, but mm. people have to know. I love that you just said that because I think that's, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm incredibly guilty of the medicine that I practice. I mean, I'm in a cash-based practice. Like people have to have a certain level of 
discretionary income to even be able to work with me. I mean, part of me being here and having heal the podcast is what else can I put out into the world that could reach essentially anybody and everyone that's free and accessible and can start to provide that education base. And I, and I really am compelled to do more. And I, and I noticed though, like that's it, it, the, the amount of income that somebody needs to have, and this is across, you know, not about race, but about like equitability for different social status and, and economic status and, and economic ability. And, and I love that you just said, it's not hard because I think that's a place where we do get really caught up in like, oh my God, the overhauls and all the dietary changes and completely, you know, eating whole foods and eating organic. And there's an expense with a lot of those things. And I think it's important. I I'm literally having this like, duh, I do not have this conversation up about the very inexpensive, very accessible, very easy things that would make a profound difference. Exactly. Well, we think about the saying, perfection is the enemy of the good. Yeah. And I think when, when I was planning to walk across or the run across the United States in 2011, I really began to think about it because a lot of the doctors I would run into would be like, well, if you can't, you know, completely change the system and forget it, I'm not interested. And it's like, let's say that I've oftentimes said health equity, trying to achieve health equity is kind of like trying to stop a tidal wave with a bucket, you know, because it's very hard, but it means that we have to try, we have to do everything we can. And, and if we can educate and, and we can work for, because it's not just about education, you know, of those poor people, those, you know, in air quotes, poor people, but it's about creating more just systems. So while education is important, I remember I was in a church about a few months before the, the event and I, I was talking to an African-American woman and I was talking to her about education. But then when I talked about systems that are unjust, for example, not enough parks or toxic neighborhoods or food deserts or, you know, living long ways from fruits and vegetables, et cetera, then her eyes lit up because she's okay, you got it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so therefore that it's not just about naturopathy doctors going off and, you know, educating everyone that are not very smart to, to know these things. But it's also about how do we create better systems so that people are not poor. So it's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just parks and neighborhoods. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. And all of us can make a difference in terms of health equity. And I applaud what you're doing because you have an opportunity to educate a lot of people. And that this is really one of the, the major reasons for the walk, because it's really about getting the word health equity, not health equality, but health equity, where everyone with different situations needs a leg up so that we all have opportunity to be the healthiest version of ourselves that we can. And so the, again, getting the health equity term out into the public domain so that more people are aware of it, but also trying to understanding that as naturopathic doctors, we are in a situation in most states where cash based too, a system that's not our fault. We didn't create the system. We didn't create a system where naturopathic doctors will be discriminated against in our healthcare, even though we're licensed in, in many states, even in my state of California. And so therefore that, but it doesn't mean it's not, as the saying goes, not our, we didn't create the system, but what we have, if we're, if our heart is there, then we can do things like your podcast, yeah. potentially like the walk to educate about these issues and show that we really care. And, and we're trying to transform America, that this is our business. 
but we're going to take in our free time, we're going to do what we can to transform systems. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, at, at this point in time, I have yet to add advertising or commercialize the podcast. So it currently comes right out of my business budget, right? Like it's part of my contribution yeah. and that might change at some point to just add more ability, more resources to reach further. But, you know, so I, I am curious to have you actually distinguish for me and for the audience, the difference between health equality and health equity. Like, what does that really mean? Well, health equality would mean like, let's say, let's say in a situation now that, let's say that it was with like with the police, let's say that healthy, I mean, police equality, or it's not really probably a term, but equality would mean like everyone is treated the same, that an African-American, a Caucasian, everyone is treated by the police in exactly the same manner with respect, yeah. with dignity. And if, if they have to arrest somebody, they do, but, but there are people are not discriminated against. It's not like a situation where driving while black or driving while Hispanic or et cetera. So that, that would be equality, that we're all treated equally. Now, in the sense of health equity, health equity is seeing that uh, we're not all starting at the same starting gate. That, for example, three times more black women die at childbirth than white women. Yeah. Okay. So, so therefore, that in the healthcare system, it's not that just we need to treat them equally, but we need to realize that certain people may way, be way behind the starting gate. Like, let's say, for example, that there was a race and that there was, a, you know, a hundred yard dash. And so when we get to that starting dash, equality would mean everyone would start at, at the same starting line. But in health equity or in, you know, race equity or whatever you want to call it, is that certain people might be given an advantage because they've been disadvantaged yeah. because there's no way that they can compete. I mean, this is yeah. not really about competition, but there's no, just using that metaphor, yeah. there's no way that they could, they could have equality because they're already so far behind that we may need to give them a leg up or something like if they use that example about where people are, are given, they're trying to look over a fence. And so everyone's given the same, the same stool to stand on but they all may be different height. You know, one person may be six four, another person yep. may be a four ten. So if they're all given the same the same step, then they would all be disproportionately, even though it was equal, even still, yep. That it was it's not equitable because the shorter person could still not see as well. But if you if it's equitable, then the the then the then the, the shorter person would be able to have a higher stool, yep. so that they would be. And in fact. I don't have statistics on this, but I have my own experience and eyeballs and perception, which is it's literally the inverse currently in the healthcare system, which is the people who already start with advantages have even more advantages in the health system. They have more access to better care. I mean, there's just like, it's endless in that, that the system is currently designed to accentuate and add even more advantage to people who are already advantaged versus to create that equitability. Exactly. Well, like the zip yep. code issue yep. that your zip code has more determination on your health and your genetics. Yep. And so that's, I think that's, it speaks exactly to what you're saying that it's already set up. So it's exponential in that, in that situation. And so there's, and then, you know, then you had discrimination and all these different things. There's quite a number of books that I've read in the last year. And, and I'm still educating myself on how people can make a difference, but also 
all of these, the different issues, what they are, because, you know, I felt like a couple of years ago, I was pretty ignorant about it, that the health equity made sense. But I was still educating myself on on the term and what what is known in this particular arena. Yeah. Yeah. This has actually been something that's only recently come into my consciousness of just, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful that actually there's some companies out there that are highlighting some of these issues in documentary series. And I mean, I'm going to actually just totally promote that Netflix seems to be at work on being willing to put some of these conversations forward in a more direct way than I remember 10 years ago ever happening. And there's a few things that have struck me as a woman. And I recognize wherever there are things that I notice as a female in medicine, you can increase the volume or or create the, the, the exponential impact that that is on Latinx communities and African-American, you know, African communities, black American communities. I actually had a podcast guest that talked about, he's like, I'm not African. I've never been to Africa. I'm a born and raised American. I'm a black American. So there's lots of different ways people like to relate to that, that reality. And I only just learned that, that it became law to include women in research and clinical trials run by the NIH in 1993. Before that, the general perception in medical research was that women were little men and they would generally study men and then they would just decrease dosages or or whatever was necessary in treatment. And I actually just came from an endocrinology seminar conference last weekend in Phoenix, and we did a whole day about perimenopausal syndrome, postmenopausal conditions that people deal with, and even just PMS, you know, premenstrual syndrome, or all of the symptoms that women deal with around their menstrual cycle. It's astounding how little research has been done around medical conditions and symptoms that women deal with. There's so many places where we just go, well, we're not sure. We kind of have these ideas and, and things that are like massively. And, and then that's, that's just the difference in gender. And then you go out even further to how there's a perception of, well, when a woman walks into a doctor's office, how she's treated and the interactions with her. And then when a black woman walks into the office or a Hispanic or immigrant woman, as soon as you have an accent, you know, I mean, it's it's like, like I have friends whose parents literally are doctors, engineers, PhDs. And when they move to the United States, they did what they could and they run, you know, the, the, the convenience stores on the corner and not pursue their engineering degrees. But we have this, this very American centric bias that the minute someone even has an accent to their English, that that means that they can't understand. And and there's a whole world of how they get treated. One of the things I do a lot with my clients is support them in what does it mean to actually advocate for their own health in the conversations with the medical doctor. And and to be totally honest, male doctors, female doctors, even doctors from other countries, it's like the system creates this way of being and acting and how they relate to people and patients. And even as another physician, this last year, you, Dennis, you don't know this, but my listeners do. My dad died of pancreatic cancer Mm -hmm. and I went through six months of the diagnosis process and even doctor to doctor, the way I would get related to in the room and sometimes have to like really stink and put my foot down for certain things to happen. And I have a degree that gave me knowledge where to even have those conversations. So it's like how much we assume 
and it and this does impact men as well. It's not like there's absolutely no impact of the the patriarchy conversations of like that old school mentality that doctors are still trained into and nurses get this too where the medical professional knows best. The patient's probably lying or at least can't possibly rec- re- recollect the honest truth about their life. Don't mostly listen to their symptoms that much. Only look at lab tests and results objectively. Only kind of consider what they're saying. Like, it's like, it's getting better, but there is so far to go still in yeah. building trust and, and relationship with the person in front of you, no matter their age, skin color, where they come from in society and to listen and validate who they are as a human being and take that into consideration and account in the medical treatment and diagnostic process. And that's just one corner of the inequality and the the discrimination that exists in medicine. Then you deal with like, even at the level of, I mean, the reason why that clinical trial conversation shifted the way it did very likely was because it was the first time there was a woman director of the NIH, Dr. Bernadine Healy. And she was the one that stood for us to actually create the massive women's health initiative where we studied over 150,000 women. And it was a 10 year cohort study. And, you know, and I remember in med school, how much we referenced that one study, like it was like the end all be all. And it's like, well, where are the other hundred studies? Right. Mm -hmm. Like it was like, well, in the women's, you know, health initiative and the women's health initiative says the women's health, which is great that we did it, but it's like, and then we're done. That's it. Like we did that one. And then what does that look like for, I mean, yeah, there's a long way to go. And I love what you said about perfection can be, I think you said perfection is the enemy of the good. So what are the things that we can do? Well, first of all, if you take a look in, in the health equity field, Dana Matthews wrote a book called Just Medicine, which is the first one that I read. And that was basically just summarize. Hopefully I'm doing her work justice. But the basic idea is that there, there is a lot of discrimination in the way African-Americans and others are treated. But a lot of times it's, it's conscious, but a lot of times it's unconscious. It's called mm-hmm. you know implicit bias. And so when doctors both white and black, because again, blacks can be discriminatory in their own, you know, in their own field because of the way the system, as you mentioned before, is set up. So once doctors are trained or, or be able to observe that what, that what they just did or what's actually happening, that they've already shown with evidence that things can change. So that's really the good news. It's not just the good news is that the system is terrible and it's going to stay terrible and we have a long ways to go. The medical system can change. And, and again, we're talking about a, a system of financial you know, incentives for doctors. You know, the way the system is set up is part of the problem to begin with, but you know, the whole system. But in terms of individual interactions, that people can change. And, uh, and, and people don't wake up in the morning. Doctors, nurses don't wake up in the morning and go, let me see, how can I discriminate today? You know, Absolutely not. And yeah. I'm sure that there are people out there that are have bad intentions, but most of the time, it's just a lack of awareness, which whether it's a lack of awareness, whether it's, you know, unconscious bias, <clears throat> it still kills people. It still maims people and still people have a shorter life. So what we can do is to basically, while we are educating people on what we know about naturopathic medicine, we can also work to create systems, to not just expect people to make changes that are very difficult to do so, like just do this or just yeah. do this. But I, I believe that even if a person is living in a, in a really terrible situation, whether it's taking vitamin D 
or whether it's walking indoors or regardless of what the, what a person is doing, change can take place. It's attitudinal that they're they have value, that they have that they have merit, that we're that we are all human beings have a right to be to be healthy. And what we're trying to do is to provide an opportunity by again creating a better systems, but also at the same time we're educating about all the things that we can do. It's it's like light a candle instead of cursing the darkness. So yeah. you know we can recognize the darkness. But at the same time, that can't be, we can't get trapped in there of thinking that it's, it's a hopeless cause. So there are things that people can do, even if they're not in a very good situation. So we have to do something. And so I've had patients who come in who are very are in desperate financial situation or desperate in their lives. And I'm sure you have too, that we, you know, that we were supporting in some way, a former, that it seems sometimes hopeless, but we, we, we have to find a way. And I, and so what I what I put it upon myself is to say, even though it may seem hopeless, we have to find a way. We have no option yeah. in this situation. And so we have to do everything. Let's make it that we're going to not allow injustice or to not allow a desperate situation to stay desperate. On a one to 10 scale, if you're at a one now, let's move you to a two and accept that survival is okay right now and that where the goal is moving to thrival and and if we put it in our brains that we are worthy that together we will find a way to improve our situation yeah absolutely and there's you know there's so many i call them finding the cracks in the sidewalk like like you can see where like one little flower makes its head out and then next thing you know there's like grass and then you know if we left it alone the concrete would start to crumble and, and, yeah. and nature will, I mean, that's one of the core foundational principles of naturopathic medicine is vis medicatrix nocturae, you know, the healing power of nature. And, and so that can be, you know, finding access to a safe park that they can go actually be outside in nature in sun. You know, I, I actually, I think I've probably shared about this in other episodes. I had a client once who was primary caretaker of her mother and Uh, elderly mother and she had breast cancer and she was also working full time. And I mean, there was like a lot happening. And this was one of those circumstances where there were minimal resources, both in terms of time, energy, emotional bandwidth, all of it. And one of the things that we kind of stumbled upon that ended up being one of the best things she did is she got a kitten. (laughs) And there was this like shift that happened in her having this adorable little thing to take care of and, and brought joy and connection and comfort. And it started to actually infuse her with more interest and willingness to take care of herself and take actions that she could take. So it's like, you never know what the prescription should be. (laughs) I've never prescribed a kitten before, but you know, and, and, and there, where it can be, you know, when I have my clients, some of which don't love taking all the supplements, right? And there's all these pills. And then I reframe it as like, every time, you know, when I say, I want you to take vitamin C three times a day, it's three times a day that you get to take an action of self-love, of 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 appreciating, of taking care of yourself, something you can do. And to reframe that into those kinds of contexts and, and where I love that, where we can move them from a one to a two, because you also never know. And this is where like, it is not up to us to write people off or make decisions of what they are and are not capable of. Right. And we never know what 
literal seed will become the pearl. What, what thing will plant inside of them that maybe we don't, we don't see it as physicians in that visit or in that year that that became the thing that five years later, it, it cracked this whole new trajectory. You know, another way I would put it is playing the one degree game. Like I'm a sailor and I have had the privilege of sailing across the Pacific ocean. And if you're off course (laughs) or if you change course by just one degree, you might be on a different continent. You might, you know, like, and so it's, it's sometimes it might be a small change today, a very small one. What is your one degree today? But over a long enough time period that can put people in completely new realities and new places. Like you said, going from survival to thrival and to thriving. And so those are all things that each of us as physicians can do. Each of us as people can do. I have had someone on this just came out this season with Karen Parker, who's talking about statistically in the research, we've shown that the happiness of your neighbors will increase your happiness, even if you never talk to them. There can be no relationship, but they've actually found that like, so you get to be one of those people that can be, bring some happiness into your neighborhood, you know, can bring that little bit of community, that little bit of, you know, whatever that is, that is that, that one degree. And there's so many places where dietary changes and nutritional changes or something, you know, lifestyle in those ways we tend to focus a lot on as naturopaths, but I've really opened up my practice to talk a lot about healthy relationships and friendships and connection and play and joy and doing things you love and all those components as well, which sometimes we have more access to than a $30 supplement may not be accessible. Oh, I tell people all the time, I agree that I tell people all the time is that, you know, what can you do that's not going to cost any money or take any time? And it's like forgiving your brother, forgiving your friend is, doesn't cost anything except for maybe some pride. Yeah. You know, and so there's a lot, there's a lot that we can do that's not, doesn't involve. And I think if I was just to do nutrition and exercise, as much as I love those, I'd probably get bored after a while if that's all I did. Because in my practice, you talk about relationships. Like sometimes I feel like I'm kind of like talking like a practically a dating service, you know what I mean? In, <laughs> yeah. in a sense of, cause we'll talk about most of my, most of my patients are women and we'll be talking about, I'll be saying like, yeah, it's like, a hiking club, you know, you ever thought about, about going to a hiking club? Not, you know, not to, not necessarily just to meet, uh, you know, that right person, but just to get around some positive uh, people. And so always talking about how, about, as you mentioned, healthy relationships, which are really the kind of the elixir of life for, for most people. And, and also the, uh, the psychology, the attitude is like, how do people become resilient? You know, how, I mean, I think that's really a big issue is like, how do people become resilient? Because there's a lot of people that come in that, you know, they don't have great diets, pretty good. And, you know, they, they do some exercise, but they're, they're just hardy people. And, and I think that I remember, I'll never forget the, the example of this woman from Michigan one time I was a patient a few years ago, that her, her life was just describing about, about fishing and, and all of these incredible activities that they used to do in Michigan growing up. She just had an incredible childhood. And I was just really amazed. And then by the time she saw me, she had three years of just absolute things would happen. One thing, whether divorce or car accident, or just like 10 different things happened to her. But yet her, her attitude was very positive that all these things had occurred. It would have just wiped most people off the planet. But for her, because of that childhood that she had, mm-hmm. that she knew that life was good. 
And she knew that that life is potential and she's going through some difficult times. So I think that, you know, how we grew up, all of the relationships we have, you know, the damaged ones, divorce, all of these particular things that we have to be comfortable talking about because, you know, nutrition and exercise can only go so far. Yeah. And and I think that for some people that already have those good relationships, they, they just may need a tweak of nutrition or whatever. But we really have to, as much by the doctors, I feel like we have to be able to talk about everything. And we have to get, you know, within the first few minutes when they're there, they, we have to try to help them to feel like I trust this person yes. and I'm going to reveal everything possible, answer the questions and I'm going to reveal myself. I have Kleenex conveniently about a couple of feet from the from from the patient because I want them to feel comfortable that they can tell everything. Sometimes they're talking about things they've never talked about before, or yeah. they haven't. They many have told me they haven't shared ever shared with their husband, and to have that kind of comfortability of safety and that um, that you know changes on the way. I think in that particular order that if you just talked about becoming gluten-free or talking about, not that those things aren't important, but every patient has to be able to tell, you know, their story and, and their pain. Yeah, absolutely. I have very open-ended questions in my initial intake yeah. and, and often I'll even have people say like, cause I'll, one of the questions I ask is tell me about your childhood. Now I do have in my mind, I'm thinking of review of systems and any, you know, have they had surgeries or illnesses or what were some of the impacts on their physical health as a kid? But instead of asking it, did you have any surgeries? Were you sick? Did you take antibiotics? Did you have tubes for your yeah. ears? I don't ask it like that. I just say, yeah. tell me about your childhood. And they literally kind of like squint at me and they're like, like what just my health or whatever. I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? Yeah. And I let their intuition, their body, their inner knowing choose how they answer that question. Mm -hmm. I learned so much from that. So I remember about that. 10 years ago, I mean, about a number of years ago, a woman said, we, I knew she had MS, that's why she came in, and she also went through divorce. I said, so when were you diagnosed with MS? About 10 years ago. And I said, when was your divorce? About 10 years ago. And I kind of like, kind of sarcastically said, I think there's a connection. And I've never thought about it. And, and it's, it's just amazing yeah. how sometimes that we don't connect the dots. And that's, I think, our job is to help people to connect the dots. See, it's like, oh my God, like, yeah, that's, that, that's, you know, that's really something. And so I think that that's, you know, loving to, to be able to listen intently to what they're saying and what they're not saying so mm -hmm. that we can be able to help them to, to, you know, amplify. Then they oftentimes it's like floodgates, you know, open up. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, my mom discovered this for me. She sent me my mom's always, she's one of my raving fans and she's always checking stuff out. And she had heard about a conference of narrative medicine. Have you heard of narrative no. medicine? No, I had neither. So there's a degree program at Med medical school of Columbia and Columbia university on narrative medicine. And there's actually quite a lot of research that's been happening about that. There's a way to train physicians and healthcare practitioners in their communication skills, their interviewing skills and how they listen and that actually hearing their patients' stories, like their true story of their life, story of their journey, increases positive outcomes, irrespective of the treatment that's given. Even surgeons who practice narrative medicine and the person feels that they have a relationship with their surgeon and their surgeon cares for them and has heard them, 
they have statistically positive, more beneficial outcomes of the surgeries, even if the technician and the technique is the same because of that relationship and that connection. So this is, this is actually an area of medicine that I speak a lot about and, and talk with other physicians about this actually cannot be overlooked. It's imperative that we build this part and it is part of our healing modality. It's part of our treatment plan and that trust that gets built. And I have the same thing with my clients and how much they, we build a relationship and and I talk about it from the get-go that we're in a partnership together. This isn't like I have some answer that you're now going to implement. We're, you know, and most of my people, there aren't direct easy, oh, I have a protocol for that. I know exactly, you know, like we're, we're figuring this out in their life as we move forward. I have a lot of knowledge to bring to the table. They've got to tell me what works. Like not all supplements are going to interact the same way in each person's body. Not, you know, there's all sorts of things and that I've got them in the driver's seat and I'm their co-pilot. And, and that's a totally different model of collaboration than what, even as a naturopathic doctor, I remember the way that I, it was presented to me was more in the traditional I'm the expert. I have the answers. I have to have the answers, which also I've talked to a lot of physicians about burnout and pressure and their experience of the exhaustion that comes from how much they put on themselves of having to be right, having to have the answers, having to have it all figured out when they know inside, like many of us deal with, with our sense of fraud and our sense of, you know, imposter syndrome of being like, I, I, I'm trying to make it look like to the outside world, but inside I'm scared. And this is what, and, and I've done a lot of my own healing such that like, I can't operate like that. Like I'll just crumble under the stress. And so I create those partnerships with our, with my patients and with the people I get to talk to in that way. It's awesome. Yeah. You and I are definitely, of course, cut from the same cloth, speaking the same language in so many ways. You know, that word protocol, you guys are crazy. Nice. I like this. Good. You know, the Tell Wiley me. protocol or this protocol, it doesn't matter what protocol it is. It doesn't mean that there's no that there's no good system that works for more than one person. But I think sometimes we just want to have the answer. And there's so yeah. many, one of the things I've noticed in the health field that really drives me crazy, and it, and it happens in all fields, and that is the need to be right. And so I did a video about that when I was walking. I kind of inspired that the goal of seeking truth as opposed to the idea of being right. And I think that when we're, we try to be right, then we try to prove things that will justify how we feel. And oftentimes then we're not seeking truth because then we're trying to defend. It's like making as from a faith perspective, like making Jesus in our image kind of thing, as opposed to reading what's there, you're, you're reading into it instead of reading out from that. And I think that makes a, that makes a, a big difference in how we approach things. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, I could definitely talk to you about all this stuff for hours, but I also want to hear about the walk. Okay. Like you just finished 600 miles and how was it and how are you now? Yeah. Well, I actually, I feel like that I have a slight thing on my foot, right foot, maybe kind of, kind of a mini plantar fasciitis that seems to be healing, but that's really the only thing physically. Now it's very interesting just while we're talking about physical is that I, one of the weirdest things was that I actually felt like my prostate was going to hell hmm. because I'm old. Well, first of all, you know, the listeners don't know, but I'm 66. And so it was interesting because, you know, drink water and all those things. But normally when I run, when I would run, I would, wouldn't pee that often throughout the day because, you know, I was sweating instead. But I, it was not only was during the day, but it was at night. And what's interesting is that 
there are a lot of nights when I'd wake up, maybe up to pee like five times in the night, which was, you know, you know, sometimes one, I mean, before I left, maybe once, it would usually be once a night. But, and it, that has actually improved since then to where back to normal. But I think that the stress, the physical stress was actually having an effect. And I, it's something that I couldn't have predicted beforehand. And it's interesting because in, in, on the sleep issue, that even though that I never really got any deep REM sleep most of the nights, very few of the nights, that I actually wasn't tired when I was walking. Mm. I, never felt, I never felt sleepy tired. But now I come back to the office and I sleep better. But yet I'm finding like my desire for coffee or something to like mm. feel tired because I was outdoors and I was walking and it was so exhilarating to be out there. And I feel like that, you know, for me that when I ran, there's always more of a risk of injury. I've had stress fractures and I've had, you know, torn meniscus and I've had a variety of things. And of course, torn meniscus has ended my running career, but walking, I just felt like a lot of times I could just keep walking forever, you know, and that I was walking 22 miles a day, but it really didn't seem like that big of a deal. Now the hills, sometimes it was way hillier than expected. I think I walked, I figured it out. It was about seven miles straight up. So in other words, like seven miles vertically, like 80, I don't know, it was like 80,000 feet or something like that. I can't remember. And Mount um, Everest is 28,000 for perspective. So that's a yeah. couple Mount Everests. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A couple, a couple Mount Everest, but not like climbing the Mount Everest, but yeah. actually straight up. So there were a lot of, a lot more altitude and, and I'll do a better calculation of the altitude gain this time, but way more hills. But I felt like that it wasn't, it wasn't that, uh, that big of a deal. Now, the, the main thing is, is that the, the people were just fantastic. I mean, I, I wrote about it. I'm actually putting... I'm in the process right now of putting all of my Facebook posts onto the website. And so, so that that's under a blog and so I'm, I'm about halfway through that and photos and different things. So I'm, you know, hopefully we'll finish that in the next couple of weeks. And that's uh, the walk USA for health equality.org for health that equity. website equity. Health yeah. Equity. See, yeah. I just, I'm retraining yeah. myself. Okay, good. Yeah, walk walk, walk USA, USA for, for health equity.org. Yeah, yeah. And we'll have that in the show notes. Okay, cool. Well, one of the, one of the things that I, in Knoxville, when I got to Knoxville on October the 10th, Columbus day, I ran into, and I, I know I'd met her a couple weeks before through fa- through Facebook, but just like you found out about the walk on A&P, and I'm going to tell these stories to Laura Farr, because, because of our connection now from A&P, but also Deborah Langheld is a naturopathic doctor in Knoxville. And she became a doctor the same age as I did at age 48. She also has her master's in public health, but she was an engineer for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so when she found out about the walk on A&P, she immediately contacted me. And so uh, she was the primary figure in, in Knoxville and she's going to be setting up, she's gonna be the co-chair uh, for the, the second leg. And she's going to do all what she, she used to be in the military. She calls them reconnaissance. I should, sorry, I use military terms, but she's going to do the reconnaissance in Tennessee and in Kentucky. And we're really going to, for the second leg, work way more on, on communities and who, who's working for health equity or social justice within those communities, whether it be in Lexington or Kentucky or Louisville or the capital, Indianapolis, all the towns we're going through. So we're trying to go to as many universities and as many towns possible. But before we go, we're going to be doing reconnaissance work, as, as she would say it. And we're going to be checking out. See, before the first walk, I was concerned about safety on the highway mm-hmm. because the roads I didn't think looked very good. 
I'm not concerned about that anymore. It's not to say that it's 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 you know it's like walking on a track or something. But it, but the thing is, is that if you're looking both ways, if you're wearing reflective gear, I'm waving my arms to you know let people know I'm coming. Unless it's a super wide shoulder, a lot of times there's kind of precarious situations. But if you're paying attention and you're focused on on the people coming at you, then I for me I feel completely safe. So I don't have to work on any of that anymore. So a lot of the things, the infrastructure about creating the website about creating you know the logo and creating all of that stuff you start when you start an organization has already been done and so yeah. now in the second part we can work on better relations with the media with with communities with all the the work that's already taking place in these communities and so this particular trip was focused on this this particular one is focused on people and so i was probably in i don't know probably over 100 convenience stores and and if you if you live in Phoenix or Sacramento or San Francisco or Hawaii or something, you're used to being able to you know drink the coffee you want. You can go out to coffee bar. Or you can go here, go there. When you're out in North Carolina or out in the middle, even if you're in rural California, it's a totally different situation. Yep. Because for me, I remember my last day. I was I only had about ten miles to go into Knoxville because I was way ahead. I was ahead of schedule. So I went out and I was so anxious to get to Knoxville and I was staying in a really crappy hotel that I left and it was actually dark, but I knew I'd be safe because the shoulders were really white because I was already pretty close to, I was already in technically in Knoxville, but it just, I was like in the suburbs and, but suburbs meaning just, you know, it was just a highway with really white shoulders. So I remember I was really cold because it was like 38 degrees and I, you know, I'm not wearing jackets or anything. And so I had, I had these shorts that converted into pants, you know, and, uh, and then you just take off, zip off the, the, the length part when you're warm. So I had my pants on and I had, I mean, I had my, those pants on and I had on a long sleeve shirt, which is all the warmth I had and some gloves. And finally I hit a convenience store and oh my God, those convenience stores are so convenient. And so <laughs> I, I walked into the store and there was coffee and it didn't matter what quality of coffee it was. It's just coffee. You don't think like, oh, I want Pete's coffee. I want Starbucks. I want this coffee. That's coffee. whatever coffee, coffee is coffee. And so then I just sat there for a minute. I was cold and I go, do you mind if I just hang out for like 15 minutes? Because I'm really, first of all, it's really cold. I'm going to wait till like dusk. You know what I mean? She says, oh, no problem. Because I'd already walked, I already gone maybe a mile and a half. But the people were just so amazing to me. I mean, and I think the thing is, is that for me, I started off, I wasn't a doctor. I didn't go in, you know, like sometimes when I would, you know, stop at a gas station or something, I might just go into a the bathroom, just not even think or ask or anything. When I was on this trip with my backpack and everything on, I knew that I needed to be a little bit different and I needed to be a little bit more humble. And so when I would walk up to the person, I would just say, would you mind if I use the bathroom? Or I would say, would you, is it possible that I could get some ice in a cup? And, and when you approach people with that attitude, I'm walking across the United States and they go, oh my God, what? You're walking across the United States, what for? And the health equity open up a conversation. And, but the, the people were always friendly to me. They were always treated me with respect. And it was just, I got so many pictures. I mean, literally, like I remember in Raleigh, got to the Capitol after seven days. This is the eighth day. And I literally just like, felt like I just grabbed these two women off the street. They were, they were professionals. They were just walking on the street, minding their own business. 
And here I'm in front of the city hall, not too far from the Capitol. And I just, I asked them some dumb question. And then they came over to talk to me. We got great pictures together. And then, or two women in Chapel Hill that were students. And I said, is this, you know, like kind of dumb, like, is this the University of North Carolina? It's like, hello, duh. And then all of a sudden, so I got to tell them what I was doing and taking pictures. And, but it was always in that situation. I just felt I was in a vulnerable situation. I felt safe in, in, in that way, kind of, you know, safe, but, but vulnerable, but, but coming out of myself, because normally you don't just walk up in a, in a Starbucks in a, inside of a grocery store to, to young, two young women and just start talking to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, but in this situation, because I was looked so ridiculous with my reflective gear and my backpack and everything else, they would, even this guy's really weird or he must have some kind of mission I want to listen to. And, yeah. and, and, and whether it's a bar or whether it was, you know, going to get a beer and the person I sat next to, it, it was just people were interested in the walk. They were interested in health equity. And there's nobody, I even got in the car of a person with a Confederate flag, an Uber driver. And, and this person asked me, and, and the car was like very unclean. Okay. It was very dirty. And so I was a little bit nervous, Confederate flag and this, and I was, and so I, so he said, so what are you walking for? You know, after we'd driven a mile or two and I said for health equity, he says, oh, that's a great idea. And I'm thinking that, you know, and I, and I'd already talked to Umberlin, uh, Blensink and Indy in North Carolina. And she told me, she says, you know, there's a lot of people, this issue crosses a lot of different political perspectives. And so as long as you keep it on the, without politics, that health equity makes sense, that everybody should have the opportunity to be healthy. And so, so, you know, the trip was just, you know, amazing. The, the scenery was wonderful. I felt safe on the roads. I felt people, you know, treated me with respect. My sister came for four or five days and we stayed in Asheville and she would, you know, go, we'd go back and forth on staying in Asheville at her sister-in-law's house. My, my son came from, from Sacramento and he stayed with me for a number of days and that was really good. But, uh, you know, just saw the weather changes over that month and, and I don't know, just, it was awesome. That's so cool. Oh, it's so awesome. I was just sharing with a friend how like inspired I am by people who do big things. Like there's just something about the, the bigness of it. And, and like, I just love hearing how it was for you and I can just picture it. And, and, and so like, do you ever, like, do you have a tent with you or do you usually have accommodations where you stay? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. It's really one of the turning point questions because when I started off, I was actually going to push a baby stroller, which now looking back on it, that was a really dumb idea. Because my two, my two sons did that. One started in Canada and the other started in, in Mexico. And they met, you know, they both pushed the baby stores. They met in Davis and across to Sacramento. But it wouldn't have worked on these highways, on these roads. So eventually I decided that I was going to, that that's not going to work. So I carried a backpack. I'm not a huge backpacker. I like backpacking, but I don't really go that often. And so I was kind of ignorant about that. And so I felt like I could keep about 30 pounds in the backpack. Well, I only weigh 150 pounds and 30 pounds is a lot of weight. Yeah. And so what happened is when I got to, when I got to, I, I started off a little bit lighter than original. When, when my son came, I got rid of a lot of the stuff because I figured like, I don't need protein powders. And some of the stuff I took for, for nutrition that I don't need that I can't carry every day. Protein bars were really handy. And I, I did take vitamins uh, sporadically. So they don't weigh much, they don't weigh that much, but I think that they were, really helpful. But I carried a tent, a five pound tent, I carried a sleeping bag, I carried a 
a little inflatable thing and uh, for, you know, underneath a sleeping bag. So that was quite a bit of weight. I would say probably, it probably weighed low twenties toward the end of the trip, but this time coming up, this time coming up, I'm going to probably carry that the first part because Kentucky is very, very rural there. And so, and but whenever I can stay in hotels, I will. Whenever I can stay with naturopathic doctors. So the way it broke down on this trip was this. So I stayed like 29 days on the trip. And it was something like this. Six days of camping. And, and most of those were at Baptist churches there mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. their property. Because there are a lot of Baptist churches in, in North Carolina, Tennessee. Oh, one time I, I stayed at a, at, a, at a place with Confederate flags. And, and that was one of, the, one of the last nights. That was actually already in Tennessee. That was along the river is actually really, really beautiful. And then I also stayed probably in about maybe nine hotels. I stayed with naturopathic doctors like nine different nights. And that was, you know, kind of the breakdown of that. But this time I'm going to try to have less weight, a lighter tent. I'm not going to be carrying 30 pounds. I may, if, I, if I'm going for a stretch where I don't need to, my, 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 if I can stay in hotels or with the naturopathic doctor or other people along the way, that I'll probably just send my backpack ahead or even possibly even home if I don't need it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Clear. God, so cool. I have not done anything like this in a long time, but, but in a previous life before I was a naturopathic doctor, I was a whitewater rafting guide and I was a downhill ski race coach. And when I graduated from high school, I actually graduated when I was 16 and I knew I was not ready for college yet. And I did a three-month outdoor leadership program called Knowles, the National Mm. Outdoor Leadership School. And it was a semester long and it was 93 days long. And out of 93 days, I think we spent 89 of them in the wilderness. Wow. And the longest stretch we did was five weeks hiking from Canyonlands National Park in Utah straight south until we hit another highway, which was as the crow flies only about 60 miles, but it's Canyon lands. This is not yeah. flat ground. So there was yeah. ups and downs and navigating and canyoneering and, and a whole world to it. I don't actually know if I even know what the total mileage is that we did during that, but I spent five weeks walking across the desert straight, you know? Wow. And so I have a tiny glimpse of what something like that might, might be like. And I, it's actually something that I more kind of threaten it when I'm annoyed or frustrated where I'm like, I'm just going to go sail for two years or I'm going to yeah. go. And even with sailing, like it didn't, my dad had been a sailor his whole life. Well, his whole, yeah, his pretty much his whole life. And he did some racing down in the Gulf of Mexico. He grew up in Florida and, uh, and we had a sailboat here on Lake Ontario in Rochester, New York, and we'd go out for day sails and we would camp out. We'd anchor and stay very luxurious camping on a sailboat, which was wonderful. But I like, didn't really get it. I was like, eh, I mean, it's nice. Like, you know, we go out, we sail for a few hours, we come back. I mean, the, the, the food and the, the accommodations were wonderful. Like you're, you know, waterfront property, wherever you go. Yeah. But then in 2013, a friend of mine who was also a fellow sailor reached out to me and said, Hey, I got a buddy looking for crew to bring a racing boat back from Hawaii to Los Angeles. And and that was like a game changer. Like there's this whole thing lit up in me. And I was like, is this the dumbest or best idea I've ever had? (laughs) And I ended up doing it. And it took us only 17 days on this trip to, to come back across. It can be anywhere from 15 to 30 days, depending on winds and conditions and all kinds of things. And I got to actually be, so I, I have a little of this thing in me that I have not found what its outlet is of 
going long distances and day after day and the routine of it. And like, I, I can really relate to what you said about sleep even where like, it wasn't at all the way you would normally sleep. And by some quantification, it's not as good of a sleep as you've had. And yet how you felt, you know, on the sailboat, I rarely ever would sleep longer than four or five hours in a stretch. Technically we're supposed to be on watch every four hours, We'd sometimes be able to blur those lines and someone would stay on longer before I would have to go up top to, to be on watch overnight. But like, it it was, it was, it was like, I just fell into this rhythm and my body fell into this rhythm and, and I slept different and I ate different and I actually felt healthier and I felt more in alignment. And, and there was something really beautiful too, about everything I was responsible for was obtainable. Like in my, I'm sure you can relate to this. I, I don't know. I don't know any physicians or most people where every day you're never going to get to the end of your to-do list. Every day there's more to do than there is time for every day. We always, you know, I always go to bed with this like pressure or sense of unfinishedness and mostly do a lot of work to be empowered around it's like that. always being a student. Except yeah. for the semester doesn't end. It doesn't end. There is no finals week and there is no two weeks off, you know, like forever. And when I do these kinds of outdoor activities, yeah, one of my favorite things about it is like my life was the size of the boat. And, and it was like, and sometimes we dealt with like our alternator went out and we thought we were going to lose the engine on day six. Like there was some major stuff that happened that actually was a bit scary. And then I was reminded we're on a sailboat and you don't technically need a motor to run a sailboat, but like, the, you know, refrigeration and some of the the creature comforts we had were, were very tied to that engine. But, but it was like amazingly freeing and such an amazing experience of being in the present moment. And that that was all there was to do. There was only to deal with what was happening. And there wasn't a lot of concern for much. I my, my mind would wander to the future from time to time. And interestingly enough, the closer we got to California, the worry ramped up as I like knew the trip was coming to a close and I knew this next thing was happening. And like, and that, that was just it. And that's always, it's been a very meaningful and sacred experience to have that kind of what it's like to be out there and to just, this is what I'm doing now and give yourself over to it fully and sleep on the ground and be out in nature and connected. And when I was a river guide, I did week-long trips. I would take people out for a week at a time and on the Salmon River and the Snake River in Idaho and in Oregon. And one of the things that was always tough was when I returned in the fall and I went back indoors. Yeah. It was weird. My body didn't feel comfortable. It was like unnerving to not feel the wind on my face and just always know where the wind was coming from. Like it, it was like, I, I've, you know, I'm completely conditioned to it. I spend most of my life indoors now, but like there was something that felt more natural totally, and right being out there. And that's the same way I experienced it. It's been a couple of times like, okay, I'm going to go back on the walk. I know I'm not supposed to start to like two till next year, but there, there's <laughs> something about it. And I think that too, that, that sometimes that we, when we're out on trips like this, that we sometimes will know that we're life is a lot simpler and we kind of want to, you know, go back to the comfort. But for me, it was like, I didn't really feel like that much this time. I felt like for me that being resilient and being living simply is really, you know, the way that I want to be. And so and then when you're married, you have, you know, you, you have to share how are you going to live? Right. So, you know, we have a choice, you know, the house or whatever. And so there are a lot of things that for me, it's like, how do I, how do I re- return with the same attitude, the same, how do I come back a better person? How do I, 
implement what I've learned on the trip back at home, because I didn't want it to just be like, I'm gone. It was a great experience and come back and just return to normal. It's like, how can I be more loving to the staff? How can I be more loving to my wife? How can I be more present with her? How can I do all of these things in a more, more effective manner? And I think that that's for me, because I felt like that if I just came back kind of the same, other than these experiences to talk about that, it's been kind of a waste because the cost of leaving, the cost of the actual cost of the trip, the actual leaving work to not, you know, have patients during that time, there is a financial cost. And so, and there's a cost to family and to all the different things. Like my wife was totally, you know, didn't want me to do this as most people didn't. Now she's, you know, one of the big cheerleaders, but in, you know, in the beginning, so there's a cost and it's like, how do I, how is the, the benefits of this going to outweigh the costs? And so one of them is more of a spiritual, psychological, emotional, that if I can come back and really see that, like, I feel differently and people, you know, and especially my family perceive me a little differently, then I feel like that, that we've achieved some spiritual, psychological, emotional benefits that will be lasting, not just on the trip, but also continuing on forward to make that, you know, transformation. Awesome. I love it. So the next leg is happening when? It starts, we just decided, Deborah and I decided, <clears throat> just started on August the 29th. Okay. So we don't, so we don't have to mess with Labor Day. It's going to start about two weeks earlier than, than it did this year because of the weather in Milwaukee and Chicago. So we're going to, we're going to risk having a lot of humidity in early, in late August, and also not have to deal with Labor Day because Labor Day would, could throw it off in Knoxville. So we decided to do a week before uh, Labor Day and then finish late September. I think, I can't remember the exact date, maybe 28th. But if you ever want to come out and, and, and walk with me, that would be awesome. You know, I mean? I'm already, that was right where my brain was going. I'm like, mm, yeah. I don't have anything. It's like, it totally, yes, yeah. I'm really interested. So well, I'll well, keep this year, going. this year, I had a couple people, a couple of naturopathic doctors walk with me, Berlin and, and Lexi Lane from North Carolina. They didn't go very far, you know, a couple of miles. And I'm, I'm not, being critical, yeah. but I'm just saying is that they had things to do and they were also support, you know, supportive for me. But I mean, to actually have somebody and I de-emphasized walking with me because I wasn't, I was concerned about other people's safety. Yeah. But, but I think somebody's uh, that now that's the second year now, in fact, it was, there was a couple of Indies that were going to come out to walk with me, but they had, to, they had to cancel the last, you know, few weeks before, but um, I would love it if, if people walked with me and had, you know, share those experiences and be able to amplify the message and to really see what I see on the road. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, yeah, I mean, I would love if you could, if one of those days from September, August, I'll probably be pretty well covered the first few days with, with, with Deborah, because she's going to, I'm actually probably going to be staying at her house for the first few days. So I'll walk and then finish that one point and then come back to her house and then drive a hit further ahead. I mean, She's just like all in. I mean, she's just like so, so totally. Awesome. In. Yeah. I mean, she's like, she's just as tense as I am. I mean, so that's yeah. pretty, or, or more so. And so that's pretty amazing. But yeah, anywhere along the way. So we're going to go be in Lexington. I mean, you could come to a rural area where it's mostly, you know, scenery and rural areas. You could come to Lexington, to the capital, to in Frankfurt or to Louisville or to, we're going to be in Indianapolis. Well, I have people in Indianapolis. So that would be really neat. I've got, I've got community there. That's, uh, that's awesome. Which would be that's where my dad is from. My dad is from Indianapolis. Cool. 
And so, and then all the way up to Chicago, Valparaiso is really, they have kind of a social justice orientation. Yeah. Indianapolis places. to Chicago. I've got a whole line of do, 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 right oh, through there. Right. Yeah. Uh, a really dear friend of mine and colleague has an integrative medicine practice in Chicago, her family run. And yeah, there's some great contacts that I could probably provide on that, that side of oh, things the, too. So that'd be really cool. Yeah, that would be awesome because we're going to begin to, I'm, I'm beginning to work on who are the NDs from, from Knoxville to Milwaukee. Allison Becker is the, from Wisconsin is, was the main person working on the licensure for the last you know, yeah. decade yeah. in Wisconsin. So yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of NDs along the way. There's a lot of universities along the way and just, you know, I'm already just can't wait. That's so great. Dennis, I just, I'm so amped that we got to have this conversation and reconnect and we are beyond just being naturopathic physicians. We are kindred spirits in many, many ways. And I'm like super excited to be reconnected with you and thank you for the contribution here. I mean, this is just going to be such an awesome episode for people of something that is is unique and impactful and empowering and difference-making. And we can't wait to follow you. We're going to have to have you back each year. Now it's going to be like, the Heal Podcast revisit with Dr. Dennis Godby. You know, it's like, what is next? Any, uh, anytime, so cool. I'll be, anytime I'll be ready to go. Great, great. Well, we'll continue this conversation. Thank okay, you so Sarah. much. Okay, take care, Sarah. Thanks a lot. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Dennis Godby, for his powerful stand for change. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next time.